Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, my guest is somebody you probably never heard of, but yet when you hear what he's accomplished and what he's done, he's he's been a fascinating uh, character, a fascinating player behind the scenes. His name is Nick Hanauer. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but let me at least give you enough uh, background about him so you'll, you'll want to hear the whole thing. Uh, he was the first outside investor into Amazon, outside of Jeff Bezos' immediate family, the first non-family investor. Uh, that worked out pretty well for him. Uh, he became interested in the uh, internet in the early 1990s and, and was right there. Actually, he's the guy who convinced Bezos to open up uh, Amazon in Seattle as opposed to New York or, or elsewhere. Uh, he's done a number of other fascinating things. He, he's run a family business that's the largest uh, pillow and linen business in, in the United States. Um, he runs a venture capital shop. He also uh, sold one of his companies, a Aquantiv, to Microsoft for $6.4 billion in cash. That was a pretty uh, pretty lucrative transaction. Really interesting guy, not the sort of stuff that, that people um, know uh, know him by his name or know him uh, by these accomplishments, a little bit behind the scenes. However, uh, a couple of years ago, he became interested in income inequality, and he wrote uh, an article for Politico that just went completely viral, and it was called, uh, To My Fellow Zillionaires... Uh, beware, the pitchforks are coming for us plutocrats. And it went completely viral. He ended up doing a TED video on this, which was not broadcast, and that created this giant backlash. And ultimately, he did a second video for TED that that was broadcast, and that went viral. Um, I think you'll find Nick to be a really insightful, interesting guy uh, who sees the world from a very specific uh, perspective and it, it's really quite um, quite interesting, quite fascinating. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. Without any further ado, uh, my conversation with Nick Hanauer. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Nick. Hanauer. Am I pronouncing that right? I was. You are. Yeah, that. perfect. Hanauer. Well done, Barry. And um, <laughs> Nick is a very interesting guy. Let me give you the short version of his curriculum vitae. University of Washington with a philosophy degree. Took over the family-owned business, Pacific Coast Feather Company, as chairman and CEO. This is a business that's been around for 
a hundred plus years, right? Well, the, it, my family's been in the business since 1884, but my my great my grandfather and my great uncle bought Pacific Coast out of bankruptcy in 1940 after moving from uh, Germany to the United States. Got it. So. And and you're probably best known for a couple of things. You were the first non-family investor in Amazon.com. Right. And you founded a company that was eventually called Aquantive that was eventually sold to Microsoft for $6.4 billion. Correct. We'll speak about both of those as well as being um, a venture capitalist in Seattle at Second Avenue Partners. Correct. So let's talk a little bit about that diverse background. So when people ask you, uh, hey, Nick, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that? Well, I mean, you know, today I devote myself to, uh, you know, a lot of my time is devoted to civic issues, policy, politics, philanthropy, and so on and so forth. But in my work life, I'm a serial entrepreneur and venture capitalist. And I, you know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family business, the the family pillow business, Pacific Coast. And my, uh, my dad was a great mentor and uh, my dad hired another guy to run the company, frankly, uh, named Roy Clothier, who was, who, was, who was an incredible mentor to me and my brother. And uh, so I had that great experience, but, the, but you know, my folks were very supportive. And so I started starting other companies in my early 20s, um, both outside the business and, sort, and also within the business, we started uh, diversifying and I helped run a retail business that we ended up buying and a bunch of other things. And so... You know, at a very, you know, I started working for the Samp family business when I was seven years old. I ran every machine and the factory. I worked all through junior high school, high school, college, and so I, I just had this foundation that was very, very broad. So you became CEO of the family business in the early 2000s. Yeah, I was ne- never CEO of the family business. I became co-chairman. Co-chairman. Yeah, okay. with uh, uh, m- my brother, who sadly passed away uh, in a car wreck a-, a long time ago, and um, and I transitioned out of the business when the mm-hmm. internet stuff ca- uh, came around. I- I'm-, I'm co-chairman of the board today. So let let's talk yeah. about how the business led you to sort of discover. The internet. Yeah, so that's a that's actually a, a great question. So, um, so you wouldn't think that uh, running sales and marketing for a pillow company would lead you to the internet, but in a very strange way, it did. Because uh, m- when I uh, led sales and marketing for the for the company, what I did is I broke our customers up into into group into groups of companies uh, that had the same strategy. Uh, and so- Such as hotels, so, retail- Yeah, exactly, it it, precisely. So we sold to wholesale clubs, mass merchandisers, department stores, uh, uh, specialty stores, uh, mail order catalogs, so on and so forth. And, and what, what I did is I reasoned that every single one of those companies basically deployed a different kind of strategy to connect themselves profitably with customers. And if I customized our approach by channel, we could deliver more profit for those companies than our competitors could. And so we stopped really selling pillows and started selling profit. And what that process did is it taught me more about the dynamics of retail than you could ever believe. And the beautiful thing about pillows is that they're little white squares. Mm -hmm. So what's happening in the retail channel really, really matters. So there was a point at which I probably knew more about the competitive dynamics of retail by channel than virtually anyone in the country. 
I knew how many dollars per square foot every one of those channels generated and, and, and every, every detail of how it worked. And so when the internet came along in the very early 90s, I could do strategic arithmetic that almost nobody else could do because I could compare what the internet would become to what department stores and mass merchandisers and wholesale clubs were doing. And it was unbelievably obvious that the internet was going to be an enormously powerful channel of distribution for goods and services. And, and, you know, and so I started looking around for a, a way to exploit that, you know, that, that awareness. And as luck would have it, uh, a, a friend of mine had the same insight and his name was Jeff Bezos. Tell me a little bit about Second Avenue Partners. What do you do with that uh, entity? Yeah, so Second Avenue Partners is an early stage, you know, we're a venture capital business, uh, although although it's a slightly different from the conventional model because my partners, uh, Pete Higgins and Mike Slade, and I only invest our own money. We didn't raise a fund. No limited partners, nope, no outside none. investors. Yeah, no, we, that gives you an ability to really think very long term. Right, and to do whatever we want. And what we didn't want to do is go to work for the man. Right, uh, which is what now you're you doing. are the man. <laughs> exactly, uh, we didn't want to go to work for the man, which is what you're doing if you're raising a pot of money from insurance companies and uh, pension funds and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, by, by by only deploying our own capital, it gives us the freedom to be, frankly, more experimental. So have a longer term horizon. So, how does that manifest forth. itself with your investments? What sort of things are you in the last minute we have in the segment? What sort of things are you putting your money into? You know, a, a broad variety of things. And, and, and you know, the, the beauty of the model is that we don't have to be, we, we, didn't, we didn't have to persuade somebody that we were expert in something and focus our attention on that. What we can do is simply look for really, really interesting opportunities. So we've, we've made investments in, in uh, UAV technology, unmanned aerial vehicles very mm -hmm. successfully, and internet software, and medical services, and, and you know, and all of it somehow magically works. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Nick Hanauer. He is a venture capitalist and one of the earliest investors in Amazon.com. Let, let's talk just for a moment about Second Avenue Partners. So you own a, such a strange and different mix of companies. Yes. Some of which I assume through Second Avenue Partners, others directly. Yeah. Seattle Bank, MarshX, Newsvine, QLiance. It seems like these are wholly unrelated. Yeah, they are unrelated. And, uh, you know, I can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is wise to invest in a broad array of uh, companies and industries. It certainly it seems is, interesting. It's super interesting to do. <laughs> um, and, you know, my thinking about investing uh, is, is, is fairly simple. And what I try to follow is what I call Nick's rule of transformational value. And that is that, you know, my view is that all transactions, all consumers seek to maximize the value of the products that they, they buy. And value really is best understood as a ratio of the benefits the product delivers divided by the cost. Mm -hmm. And things that have high value have a high ratio of benefits to cost uh, versus the alternatives. And it, it's been my experience that in every case where you find a breakout investment, a company that really builds an extraordinary franchise, they start with what I call transformational value, which is the ratio of the benefits they deliver the consumer to the cost is someplace between 10 and 100 times 
higher than the alternatives. An order of magnitude or One to two orders of magnitude higher. So let me give you an example. So Amazon.com. So when Amazon.com came along, the best way to buy a book in the world was to go to a superstore where perhaps there were 50 or 75 or 100,000 titles and you would have to get in your car, you have to drive to that store, you have to paw through that you know, find that, the right section, find the right, find you know, the right shelf, well, find the right yeah. book. And so Amazon Amazon.com comes along and the day we open, we, we offered, I, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but over a million titles. So 10 times the selection that you could find at the biggest superstore, if you lived in a big city, mm-hmm. we sold them for, I think, 40% less than the suggested price. So almost half of what you would have to pay at a normal retail store and you don't have to drive there you don't have to you don't have to use your time take your car park and go do it and so it was very clear that we were offering consumers who were looking for books and you know an immense amount more value than they could get uh, using the usual channels and as a consequence from the first day onward sales exceeded our wildest expectations that people really, really appreciated the value we delivered to them and they preferred to buy books in that way and the rest is history. So you had mentioned earlier that when you were involved with the family business, it led you to start exploring what was available in terms of the internet in early 90s. You tell a story about the two Jeffs and how ultimately you found Amazon.com. What what is the story of the two Jeffs? Yeah, so I talk a lot about how I became successful and stuff like that. And, and you know, I feel very strongly that the mo- you know, it's been my experience, certainly my case, and in the case of almost everyone I've ever met, that the extraordinary success is usually a confluence of extraordinary skill and extraordinary luck. It's both. It's both. And there are no extraordinarily rich people who aren't also extraordinarily lucky. For every extraordinarily rich, talented person, there's another equally talented person that just didn't have the breaks. And my favorite story to prove that point about myself is that I had this very early interest in the Internet, and I had two incredibly talented friends who simultaneously started Internet retail businesses. Uh, One was Jeff Bezos, who started Amazon.com, focused on books. And another was an equally talented guy named Jeff Tauber, who was a divisional merchandise manager at Bloomingdale's, which at that time was the number one retailer in the country, who started an online... um, uh, Like a superstore. uh, uh, Yeah, it was was an online department store. Mm -hmm. And to make a very long story short, books are a pure commodity. And, you know, a copy of War and Peace is a copy of War and Peace. Right. You know exactly what you're going to get. And in the early days of the internet, uh, people didn't trust what they'd get. Uh, so it was much easier to get people to purchase books than it was a suit or a pair of shoes or something so like that. is that the genius of Bezos? Is yes. that he came across something that everybody knew, everybody yes. was familiar with? a pure with, commodity. And read a, but there was a long tail effect that, yes. hey, we could offer you 2 million of yes, these. Absolutely. Your local store's got 20,000, come shop at us. Selection mattered, but it was a pure commodity. It was a very unusual, uh, a very unusual combination. I don't think people really perceived yeah. Amazon that way in the early days. No. Because I remember it was either 97 or 98, my college roommate, I'm already out of school for 15 years, my college roommate for my birthday gave me an Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. And so you start playing around on the site and there are reviews not only from professionals but from other readers and there's all huge, huge 
tale of product. Plus, there was music and yes. video and other stuff. And but we did that quite quickly afterwards. Very right? Jeff, quickly. Yeah, I'll never forget. We had this. Uh, remember a conversation in Jeff's office. And Wait, back up a sec. So you were on the board, though, weren't you? On the board of advisors. For- yeah. So I was his first investor. Um, you know, I mean, you know, when Jeff decided to start Amazon, he, he you know, as luck would have, he was living in New York City, and he. he D.E. E. Shaw, he was working, working at a hedge fund. Work, working at D.E. Shaw, and I, I know Jeff because he was dating a very, very close friend of mine named Ann Dinning, who was another vice president at D.E. Shaw. And, you know, he, you know, among other reasons, I suppose because I begged him to, ended up starting Amazon in Seattle, and there were some very good reasons to do it because it was close to Microsoft where there were lots of developer talent, and it was close to a large book distribution center, which was in Roseburg, Oregon at the time. And... You know, so we ended up sending his stuff from New York to my house and off we went. And so I was not actually formally on the board. I was a board advisor for mm-hmm. the first six or seven years of the of the company's existence until 2000 or something like mm-hmm. that. So, so yeah, we, you know, in the early days, you know, as my friend Eric Dillon said, we, Jeff would call us to decide what kind of pop to put in the, um, the pop machine. But, you know, after, after a while, <laughs> Jeff is a brilliant guy. He got his management legs under him and he doesn't need a lot of help today. But, but. I, I want to emphasize something about Amazon.com, the Amazon.com's success that almost nobody understands, that, 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 that contributed more than anything to it. And it is something called the negative cash conversion cycle. And what that means is that because the, our terms with our, with our uh, suppliers, the book, the book uh, resellers was 60 to 90 days. Mm -hmm. And because they could ship to us within a day, we could collect cash from our customers 60 to 90 days before we had to pay our suppliers. And what that means is the bigger you get, the more cash flow you have. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Nick Hanauer, a venture capitalist, early investor in Amazon. And let's talk about one of your big successes, uh, the company you had founded called Avenue A Media. Where did the idea for that come from? Yeah, so Avenue A Media morphed into this company, Aquaniv. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had this, again, this goes back to the very early days of the internet. Uh, we had at the pillow company, Pacific coast, we had this idea that we would have a website and, um, we had the idea that we would build essentially what be, what we now know as a click network to drive traffic to the website. Define define click network. But basically we, we, we gave people an incentive to send traffic to us from their website by giving them a commission or an affiliate affiliate network basically. Mm -hmm. And sort of by accident, we built an affiliate network, which at one point made my company's stupid website, one of the highest trafficked sites on the internet, the pillow, the pillow company website. It is in the very early days. We realized that we either had to shut this thing down or go turn it into a business, and we decided to turn it into a business. And so we spun it out of the pillow company. Basically, the early idea was to expand this into a into a, a click network, and that didn't really work. And again, to make an incredibly long story short, we ended up being essentially an internet advertising agency. What we did is we built one of the early web servers, and what we enabled our customers to do was to place ads with a variety of publishers and then measure the relative effectiveness of those adverti- of that advertising. Hence the quantitative it, side. It, of exactly. It and 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 drive better results as a consequence. And that and that 
company became, uh, you know, very successful. It was a big company when we finally sold it, generating a huge amount of, ca of uh, cash flow. And what, what sort of revenues was it doing you know, before I, it was sold? I think it was approaching. I mean, we're growing at like fifty percent a year, but I think it was approaching three quarters of a billion dollars in so real revenue, right? And a hundred and fifty, two hundred million in cash flow. Yeah. So Microsoft comes along. And said, here's $6.4 in cash. Yeah, yeah. What was that negotiation like? That was a crazy negotiation. So what happened was that Google bought DoubleClick. I recall was our, that was a huge, yeah. huge acquisition. Yeah, so Google bought, bought DoubleClick for $3 billion. And we were twice as big as, as, uh, really? as Google. Terms of, as, it, as DoubleClick, yeah. In, in terms, terms of, of revenues. Yeah. A Quantum <laughs> was doing double the revenue yeah. and- Volume yeah, of DoubleClick. Pretty much. We felt like DoubleClick was much better known at the it time. It was. They started before us. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but we had an agency business and we had a bunch of other businesses going. And we were, you know, we felt like we were worth about twice as much. Um, but we and we had been doing a lot of strategic work with Microsoft in their in their in their ad business uh, all along. But and when Google bought DoubleClick, that started to make it made it made Microsoft nervous. It made Yahoo nervous. And it made a bunch of the big agency holding companies nervous. Mm -hmm. And within weeks, we were in a process. Uh, uh, and and did it come about from Microsoft directly, or did you approach them? Uh, I you know <laughs> you know did your wife ask you out the first time, or did you ask her? No, I changed. Yeah, okay, it was pretty okay, clear. Okay, okay, she wanted know. nothing to yeah, do with okay, me, and okay. I was the. Well, I, I think it was slightly more nuanced and complicated yeah. in the case of Aquanov and Microsoft. I can't remember exactly who did what first, but I think somebody asked a leading question, and somebody else followed up with a leading answer, and before you knew it, we we're in a process. So this was pretty quick. This yeah, wasn't it was a long was drawn-out affair. Well, I mean, you know, I think within sixty or ninety days, or I can't remember, Barry. I should remember, but. Not that long after DoubleClick uh, was purchased, we were in a process, and before you knew it, there were a lot of suitors because- Oh, really? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of people were very, very interested, which is why- Anyone who had a network, anyone who had an interaction with a lot of advertisers, yeah, anyone yeah, yeah, who yeah. potentially- We sat in between everybody and the advertisers, right. right? So it was a very strategic position to be in, and uh, and the company was generating a huge amount of cash and growing like a weed, and so it was a very attractive business and a very attractive strategic uh, acquisition. And uh, there, you know, and uh, you know, it ended up as a uh, you know a pretty crazy bidding war. Uh, and you were Microsoft in Seattle; prevails. they were in Seattle. Yeah, and we that wanted made it pretty to, easy. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, to be honest, a lot of the Microsoft people are our friends, right? Right. Like we, you know, this felt like a good with, fit. Yeah, yeah we ha we hang and out it with was six point four billion. In yeah, cash. exactly. It wasn't so, even a stock. No, no, deal. no, no, no. It was good. Yeah, it was good. Yay, yay so, us. So yeah. how did how did that? What was that transaction like when the papers are signed? Where do you go for dinner that night? What the heck oh, is that like? God, what did we That do? has to be a crazy you just sold your, did yeah. you say I'm going to Disneyland? How how does you how yeah. do you respond to God, you a know, 6 billion dollar sale for what essentially was a spin out of a click network yes. from a pillow company? Yeah, you know, it was a great moment, I won't lie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and you know, the thing about that company was that we built you know, it, it was it, it was really the highlight of my business career, mostly because the team that we built uh, was such a great team and people liked each other and worked so well together. So uh, just a super fun, super fun thing. I, I don't I, I can't even remember. I mean, I, I my wife and I, I think, had dinner with another couple who owned a little bit of the stock and they made a whole bunch of money too and it was you know it was a very nice thing i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio my special guest today is nick hanauer he is a venture capitalist and uh, investor 
uh, and business person and also an author. So let's uh, spend the segment talking about uh, a very famous article you had written for Politico called A Memo to My Fellow Zillionaires, The Pitchforks Are Coming for Us Plutocrats. That's right. How did that come about? So, well, uh, you know, Barry, uh, I, I write a lot. Uh, uh, I write a lot. Uh, and, uh, you know, my main area of interest is political economy and uh, economic inequality and the connection between growing inequality and a variety of problems, including a crappy business environment. And, you know, my very strong feeling is that uh, concentrating all of the wealth and power in the hands of a tiny minority of people at the top is not going to end well, particularly for the people at the top. Well, that's uh, what history is. Yeah, you know, yeah, told there us and no exceptions to go that. To France, rule. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of a lot of beheadings back in the exactly. day. Exactly. Eventually, it ends badly. And uh, and you know, my view is that with just a tiny bit of moderation, uh, with just a tiny bit of uh, policy change, we can build an economy that doesn't just isn't just fairer and work better for uh, you know people at the bottom, but ultimately will be a more uh, you know uh, essentially a a richer opportunity set for people like me uh, who build companies. Uh, you know, when workers have more money, people like me, business people have more customers, and and the Henry worst, Ford said that exactly. And the worst thing about economic inequality is you're basically in the pro, you, you're you're systematically destroying your customer base. Which you're eating makes, your seed corn. Yeah, it makes no sense. So let so. me throw some numbers out from your article. Yeah, you noted during the past three decades, compensation for chief executive officers grew 127 times faster than it did for workers. CEOs used to earn 30 times the median wage. Now it's 500 times. And back in 1980, the top 1% controlled 8% of the national income. Now their share is 20%. Yeah. What was that? What was the thinking behind that data? How, what sent you looking for those numbers in the first place? Oh, you know, you know, just a generalized concern about the trends, and the, you know, this this data isn't hard to find. You can, you know, you can look it up pretty easily. And the trend, you know, it's not the fact that we have economic inequality that's the problem. Some economic inequality is indispensable to having a high functioning capitalist uh, sure, economy. Sure, of course. But the, incentives the and yeah, all that motive, stuff. Right. So the problem some is people are going to do better because they're contributing more. Blah yeah, blah blah. Right. All good. The problem is increasing amounts of economic inequality over time, right? It, it, you know, in 1980, the top 1% had about 8% of national income. Today, it's 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 closing in on 24%. Wow. The bottom 50% of Americans in 1980 shared about 18% of national income. Mm -hmm. Today, it's down to 11%. Down or, a third. Down a third, right? Wow. That's so huge. here's the thing. All you got to do is put that data in a in a in in a, an Excel spreadsheet and just run the extrapolation out 30 years. The numbers are scary, right? Because the top 1% will control in the in the mid 30s, 35, 36, 37% right. of national income and the bottom 50% of Americans will share 5 or 6% of national income. At that point, you don't have a capitalist democracy anymore. You have some kind of feudal system and a plutocracy. Yeah, yeah, and and it's just not going to work out for anybody. It's so just what, not going to work out for anybody. And so, there's no reason for it. It's an, it just makes no sense. So what was the pushback? That everything you're saying sounds perfectly valid. Yeah. Hey, when income inequality gets to great extremes, bad things happen in society. Yeah. You're not providing opportunity, you're not providing a solid education, the roads and bridges fall yeah. apart, right. et cetera, et cetera. So 
you would think there wouldn't be a whole lot of pushback to that, but there was. Yeah, and it, so it, it, there, there, you know, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of consternation, and 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 quite rightly, a lot of rich people don't feel like this is their fault. It feels like they're being blamed for economic inequality, mm-hmm. and obviously, a lot of rich people didn't sit, set out to make other people poor. Right. And and so when you raise the issue of in economic inequality, lots of rich people feel like they're being attacked unfairly. And there's a legitimate that and that feeling is legitimate. Mm-hmm. But the simple truth is that wealth is concentrating in fewer and fewer hands. And and the average family in our country is struggling more and more. And that's a consequence of a bunch of policy decisions that we have made in this country of the last 30 or 40 years that we need to reverse. And give me a few examples. We of have let the decisions. we have let the minimum wage fall to historic, historically low levels. Right. If the minimum wage had tracked inflation, it would be ten and a half dollars. If the minimum wage had tracked productivity gains in the country, it would be twenty one dollars and seventy cents. If the minimum wage had tracked the wages of the top one percent, it would be twenty eight dollars. Instead, it's seven twenty five, but two dollars and thirteen cents plus tips for tip workers, right? And remember, most tip workers don't work in some fancy New York steak restaurant right. where they make huge amounts of money. Right. They work in some Sherry's or Denny's in a small town, and they don't make anything in tips. And you know, the truth is that if we, we need to dramatically increase the minimum wage, and if we did, not only would those workers and their families be better off, but the economy would work better because those people would now be able to afford to buy stuff from the companies that I start, right? Which is the problem is you've got this giant industry of free riders, right? The McDonald's pays their workers poverty wages, and not one of the people in uh, McDonald's can buy the products that the companies that I start mm-hmm. products, right? All of my employees can afford to go to McDonald's every day, right? But not by, vice versa. All of my employees pay taxes. All the McDonald's employees, they don't pay taxes. In fact, they need public services like food stamps and Medicaid right. that my employees pay. And none of this makes sense, when right? We look, when we look nationally- Fairly consistently, state by state, fast food workers or Walmart workers are consistently the biggest group getting federal aid, and it's not a coincidence. They basically set their salary levels. Right. Look, McDonald's ran into a lot of heat for their McBenefits phone line, <laughs> right. where they literally were walking their employees through, how to get here's how stamps. to gain the system so we don't have to pay you yeah. a living wage. We'll pay you 7 bucks, and you'll get another $6 an hour and in there is fed no- assistance earthly reason where why giant profitable corporations can't pay their workers enough so that they can be robust participants in our economy. I want every single worker at Walmart to be able to earn enough money to buy the products that the people that I employ make. It's just not fair that their people can't afford to buy my stuff, but my people can afford to buy their stuff and my people have to pay taxes and their people don't. So now let's Stupid. talk a little bit about how this became a TED speech that generated a little bit of controversy. So you did a TED video. I did. I've done two. But I, the first one I did- uh, On uh, this exact subject. Yeah. I mean, basically, it was called uh, raise, uh, you know, raise Taxes on the Rich to Roar the True Job Creators. Because in, if you understand a capitalist economy in a 21st century way, what you have to see is it's really, it's, it's essentially an ecosystem and it's characterized by circle of life-like feedback loops. And the true job creators in a capitalist economy are consumers. And when the middle class thrives, people like me get to start companies and sell them stuff. And the more stuff they 
they buy, the more people we we employ. Uh, and I gave that speech at TED uh, some years ago, but it was before the issue of economic inequality was one that was, you know, just pre-pickety. It, yeah, yeah. It was. It was. It, it made people uncomfortable, and as a consequence, they didn't want to post the talk, and that created a lot of controversy, and they chucked me out of the conference, and blah 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 blah. But uh, you know, fortunate- how did that resolve? Uh, the, the beautiful news is that after a couple of years, Chris Anderson, who's a great guy, and I uh, kissed and made up because uh, Chris is a good guy and realized that, you know, this was a very important issue and something that Ted had to tackle uh, uh, head on. And so he asked me to do another talk, which I did last August, based on the plutocrats piece, by the way. And uh, now we're good friends again, and I'm going to the conference. And and you did you did that plutocrat video went fairly viral. I yeah. mean, a lot of TED videos go viral, yeah, yeah. but this came right time, right, right yeah, moment yeah, in absolutely. history, and yeah. it just blew up. Yeah, yeah. And so, and because this is a very important issue, and I think that, uh, you know, most smart, even rich people agree that the economic inequality is something that we're going to have to deal with somehow. Obviously, when it comes to what to do, uh, it gets the conversation becomes more difficult because it involves trade-offs that people often don't want to make. Let, let me throw you a quote from actually my guest last week was NYU professor, two weeks ago, NYU professor Scott Galloway said, it's never been easier to become a billionaire and it's never been harder to become a millionaire. Do you agree or disagree with that? And I oh. think there's a touch of hyperbole. In, yeah, in there's it. a touch. Of, I, I, there, uh, he's obviously being hyperbolic, but I think he's making an interesting point, which is true that we we have an economy today, which in many ways is a winner-take-all economy, and where uh, great success really is great success. Where wildly uh, rewarded. Just, just wildly, insanely rewarded. But to be moderately successful actually is becoming harder and harder and harder because the society is bifurcating, because we're turning into a, into a society and economy of a tiny number of winners when everybody else is a loser. So, Nick, if people want to find your writings or your work, where, where do they go to, to see that? Just put my name into Google, Nick Hanauer. <laughs> there will be a thousand links. We've been speaking with Nick Hanauer of Second Avenue Partners. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the rest of our talk. You can find that on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. Welcome to the podcast half of our show. I'm here with Nick Hanauer. Am I pronouncing that right? I always Perfect. feel like I'm saying that no. wrong. Perfect. Hanauer. So let's let's get back into the finance side of things, because there are so many other questions. We keep hearing all this chatter that we are in a technology bubble. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, got to be. <laughs> Tech, uh, tech bubble, tech you say bubble. yes. Well, I mean, you know, tech tech is everything now, right? What's right. not tech? Uh um, is Uber a tech? Honestly, well, yeah, is Uber U- tech? Yeah, Uber Come is on. a tech. It's a ca- it's a taxi service for guys. No, no, sakes. the taxi <laughs> the taxis are free agents. Okay, but Uber is the software that connects them with the riders. Right, but you know, it's a taxi. Or business. now the service that's going to be delivering packages yeah. or dinners. Yeah, or that's right. theoretically what they're where they're. Yeah, but heading. it's different than tech was 30, 40 years ago. I mean, technology impa- enables so many things. Uh, my point simply is that. You know, there's a whole bunch of companies out there that are valued in the billions or tens of billions where 
a little tiny thing goes wrong and it's worth hundreds of millions, <laughs> you know, and right. I, you know, I think we're riding the ragged edge uh, on a lot of those valuations. So, uh, and, and you have this weird thing, right? As you know, that the, that the public markets and the private markets have flipped a little bit. Sure. It, yeah. Where, so where, you have Uber is private at 50 yeah. billion. And you, you know, I have a ton of friends now who are, who, who, who are complaining about the fact that their companies are public because if they were private, they'd be worth twice as much as they are. Well, they chose they, they, to go public. They took the cash. Yeah. That was enough. You don't get to go back in time and, and call no. for, for a do over. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so when we look at other companies, let, let's look at some of the public companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, how, how do these line up in terms of, we always hear people say, Amazon is overvalued because they're not throwing off a whole lot of profits. Yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I've all, you know, having grown up with Amazon, uh, I'm, I'm more sympathetic to their market cap than I am to a lot of companies because um, I, I am so sure that if Jeff wanted to generate tons of free cash flow and profit, you could, could do it in a minute. Right. Uh, he he is now and has been from the day we opened the doors, the metaphorical doors. Right. Uh, uh, um, uh, been after maximizing growth and market share, and uh, there's He's a clearly been successful. Absolutely, doing that. and there's a trade-off between growth and profit. And if he Jeff Bezos grow. wanted to raise the prices on every product at Amazon three percent, no one would notice. Right. Really, and and he would generate a just a ton of cash flow. Uh, and so something you could do, I mean, you could literally do with the push, push of a button. Right. So what, <laughs> so, what is their secret sauce? What has, we talked about how their negative cash flow, um, negative cash conversion cycle, conversion right. cycle was really a secret weapon for yes. them in the beginning, but they seem to be way past that now. And between Amazon cloud and there's yeah. so many different services they're offering, what does the future of Amazon look like? Where oh, where is this company you know, going? I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not an authority on Amazon. I haven't been involved in the company in ten years. So, I, you know, I are you I, still an investor? No, I'm you... not even an investor anymore. I, I, I'm not a big public company investor. I, I invest in private companies, and when they go public, I sell my stock and I move on. So, so let let's go down that list yeah. then, because you have some interesting. I'm pulling up my my yeah. uh, list here. So we talked about a quantum. Yeah. Six point four billion to Microsoft, uh, in, sit, in, in situ, situ to Boeing for four hundred million. Yeah, what did In Situ do? Oh, this is a fantastic company. So, and a great story. So, In Situ makes uh, unmanned aerial vehicles for surveillance and combat. A perfect That's, fit with Boeing, exactly. And you happen to be right there in y Seattle. Yeah, so. and so here's the great story: is that a couple of uh, aeronautical engineers who were also windsurfing freaks, uh -huh. wind up in, in in a place called Bingen, Washington, which is across the street from Hood River, Washington, on in the Columbia Gorge on the Columbia River, okay. uh, which is one of the windsurfing capitals of the earth. Okay. And they start looking around for a thing to do. And this guy, Ted, Tad McGeer, uh, had, had been doing experiments with UAVs and... These guys get together and they start building this UAV company. And their early idea is that they're going to build these small unmanned vehicles with cameras on them that can help tuna fishermen find tuna without helicopters. This was our big idea. And uh, so we thought that, of, that's a whole lot of battery power. That no, they it's don't not. Look. It's not battery power. They're little. It's just like little RC engines, right? So, little, okay, little, so little, gas. Little, little gas engines, right? 
And so they built some of these things and they, and, uh, you know, we had some interest in it. And then 9-11 happens and you realize that UAVs are going to be a big part of the military apparatus. And mm -hmm. so we made this investment. And, uh, you know, in situ was lucky enough to grab, um, uh, uh, you know, some really, really incredible managers, some really visionary managers uh, in particular, a guy named Steve Sliwa, who was one of the best CEOs I've ever come in contact with. Really? And they built this thing into an incredible company with incredible technology. And, you know, the, the, these UAVs were so effective that the Marine Corps, you know, threw giant fits with the Department of Defense to get this stuff through the supply chain. Way, way, way. Whole and, yeah, oh, my and God. A... And they were just like, no, you will do it right now. Um, during Iraq, during, right during, in the middle during, of combat. Exactly, all that stuff. We don't stuff. have time to pussyfoot around with yeah, we need it the right regular yeah, yeah. Uh, so these, acquisition process. Exactly. Go buy this product. Yeah, so this is a 10-foot wingspan, 33-pound plane that launches via catapult. Uh, from the ground. From just... the ground. You just launch it via catapult. It it doesn't need an airfield to land. It actually flies into a rope to land. Right. And it's totally autonomous flying, totally invisible at 3,000 feet. Um, and can, you know, and can basically not quite read your watch, uh, but, but close enough, but close enough and just unbelievable intelligence for forward, uh, uh huge, huge tactical advantage, huge in, tactical in advantage. Situation. And so these, and so these things, um, you know, were really, really, really useful to the military, both on land and at sea, right? These things are now deployed all over the place. Uh, um, and of course, Boeing can scale it up and make it. Exactly. Clear, you know, and so we built this just an extraordinary company and uh, Boeing came along. Uh, Boeing was an integration partner and came along and finally said, no, we got to own it. So they right. bought it from us. So, um, but here's the great part. That, is that was that, a $400 million acquisition. Yeah. Here's the, here, the best part of it is that um, this tiny town is a tiny, it's a tiny it was a tiny, crappy, poor town with like one sawmill, uh -huh. and uh, it is it is I think one of the most. It, it, this company has turned this county into one of the uh, Washington State's most affluent counties today. Really? Yeah, there are like eight hundred, you know, like PhD type aeronautical engineers now right. working in this tiny town building UAVs, and now you have all these spin off spin off technology companies making right. wings and. And uh, all the suppliers, all the suppliers to, and all that stuff. And so it's just it's an extraordinary story of economic development. You know, and now really Boeing owns it. Yeah. And, and yeah. this is made made over there. Yeah. Um, market leader sold to Trulia yeah. for three hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah. What was market leader? Market leader was, uh, you know, uh, market leader was a company that sold leads. So, you know, much like Zillow sure. to, to real estate agents. Uh, we were an early entrant into that business mm -hmm. um, and uh, basically connected real estate agents with people who wanted to either buy or sell their house and uh, evolved into a company that both did that, but also built software uh, to help agents manage their businesses. Mm -hmm. And um, so Trulia bought that and then Zillow bought Trulia. They they described it as a merger, but... We'll, we'll, we'll okay, recognize okay, it yeah. as, uh, yeah. that's what I always thought. Is that, was, is that true? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I always thought it was an acquisition. But, oh, okay. But, know. uh, you know, you never know who's got a safe face for what. Yeah. Gear.com. What was Gear.com? Oh, that was a great one. So that was an, er that was a, a really early internet company. And we had this, uh, again, this is in the, oh my gosh, it's the late nineties, right? Before any of this stuff really, really got going. 
And we had this insight, which of course is true, that there was a terrific opportunity to liquidate things on the internet, to buy, um, to buy uh, uh, overstocks and so on and so forth and, mm -hmm. and sell them to people uh, via the internet. And we wanted to focus just on sporting equipment, in particular hard goods and stuff like that, reasoning that last year's tennis racket uh, is 99% as right. good as this year's tennis racket. But if I can buy it for 20 cents on the dollar and sell sure. it to you for 50 cents on the dollar, everybody's happy. And so we went off to do that. Uh, but, a, you know, like a lot of the companies in the early days, uh, you, you know, it was, it was tough sledding because you may forget – but it wasn't that long ago when people were like, well, I'll never I'll never send my credit card on right. the internet, right? right. You remember it's those so days? Risky, yeah, sure. yeah, I'm never going to buy anything on the I internet. I remember when my friend my college roommate had given me that gift certificate to Amazon, putting all that information in it and a box arrives in the mail. This I this was when I think we lived on Lex and 27th and one of our neighbors said, "What's that?" "Oh, a store online." Blah. Gave them your credit card. Yeah, no, you it forget. Was, it was just people were looking. They were now, terrified. It, now, basically, <laughs> everybody has everybody else's social security, yeah, date of birth, everything. It's everywhere. We've gotten over it's it. A hack away exactly. from from. We've gotten over it. So when you when you when you were trying to start these companies, when only one in ten consumers had access to the internet, right in the early days, right, right, and when only one in ten of those were willing to buy something on the internet. That's amazing. Right? It, it, it was a much harder thing to get a business up to escape velocity than it is today. It couldn't when scale that. It, it was very difficult to scale when everyone's on the internet and everyone's willing to transact on the internet. And so these, a lot of these early ideas like gear were hard to, to scale up, not because they were bad ideas, but because the, the, the market wasn't quite there. You, for you had to overcome that consumer resistance exactly. until people. Exactly. And that just took a generation and now it's... It's part of the fabric. Nobody thinks twice. About exactly, it. and and so uh, so we um, so we built that company into something. It was going pretty well. We got a big investment actually from Amazon.com to scale that thing up, uh, and then we sold it to Overstock.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was the sale price of that? So that was the one number I didn't have come. Uh, was that a merger or was that a sale? No, it was a sale. I think. Barry, I can't remember. I made money. I know that. Uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you. It's been so many years. I don't remember. That was late 90s, right? Yeah. All right. So we did. Thousands or something like that. I cannot for we the did life in, of me in remember. Situ... I'll tell you what, though. Yeah. I bought an airplane with the money I made. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Mark Cuban, Mark Cuban yeah. tells the story that he bought an airplane yeah. after he saw broad, sold Broadcast.com. Yeah. On the internet, it was the at the time it was the biggest internet purchase ever. Ever, right? Yeah. It was like four million dollars or yeah. something. And now you don't even people are buying art for a hundred million. Yeah, yeah. On no, the I bought my first airplane with the proceeds of the overstock. What what plane it was, was that? A Citation Five. Okay, yeah. not a not a bad little ride. Yeah, yeah. So you had this <laughs> great negotiation with um, Microsoft. Yes. With Aquaniv, what was your role with Aquaniv when this was being sold? I was chairman. Oh, you were chairman, so yeah. you were more than just an outside investor. Oh no, no, I was chairman you, of the board. You had yeah. you had to be pretty integral to the, oh, yeah, to yeah, the yeah. negotiation yeah. process. Yeah, yeah. So sure. the question is, they used to have a Microsoft had a reputation for being a fearsome competitor, a very tough negotiator. Yes. It sounds like your deal with them was a little kinder and gentler than now. Have have they mellowed? Was this just a good fit, or did all the parties sort of know each other? 
Uh, no, I mean it was a it was a it was an arm's length deal, and right. uh, you know the old saw, Barry, that you, you don't sell a company, people buy a company. Okay, right, and, uh, and especially when we're talking about billions, I- exactly. And and the truth is that there were multiple bidders. Uh, and uh, if Microsoft hadn't bought it, then uh, then someone was Yahoo was absolutely going to buy it. Oh, and, really? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and and there were two others who were in the wings too. After Yahoo, who else was? Uh, there? A couple of the giant. Uh, um, uh, 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 advertising holding companies, mm-hmm. right? Um, I can't remember which ones were off the off. But Microsoft was the best fit. They were local. Well, I mean, and they were the higher bidder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, although, you know, I mean, as I recall, we could have done another round of bidding, but we felt like we had gone far enough and it was a fair price and we just right. didn't want to, you know. 6.4, take the money fit, and run. Fit, yeah, exactly. Well, but, you weren't, that wasn't even, that was more, almost... 10 times sales, a little less than 10 times sales. That's yeah. by any definition a good sale price. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a fantastic deal. And as we, and I have to tell you that we were very emotional about it because, you know, we had built a great company. It was growing really fast, and we felt like there was a ton of runway left. But, you know, as Brian McAndrews, the CEO of the time, and I, you know, as he said to me at the time, well, it, you know, this is a deal good enough so that we'll have no regrets. It's not like right. you look back and be like, well, that was stupid. We should have kept it. Right. Now, as it turned out, Microsoft – um, is a toxic environment for anything that is not Microsoft. And within 18 months, they had destroyed the business. Really? They, yeah, they wrote the whole thing off. Come on. Yeah, destroyed You would it. have thought they integrate that into Bing and that becomes, no. they're so desperate to compete no. with Google at the no. time. They totally screwed it up. I am so shocked to hear that. I was thinking, no. well, it makes sense. It's a good fit. Uh-uh. They totally botched it. Now, that was under the Balmer re- yes. regime. Yeah, it just wasn't Who strategic. pretty much botched everything out. But it could have been strategic because they were rolling out. Well, they missed social, they missed search, yeah. they missed mobile. Yes. This looks like, all right, we got to participate in those things. Yes. Yeah. Let's, let's find a way to do this. They botched it. And, it, you know, what, it, what they should have done is they should have rolled it out as a separate entity and had somebody, had our team run it. Right. And, and put a bunch of stuff that they were doing underneath our team. And if they had done that, they'd have had a hell of a robust business. But instead, they tried to shoehorn it into the giant Microsoft octopus and you know it just didn't work can can i tell you one of the most fascinating experiences i've had this year so we're in seattle in january yeah we get invited to present to the uh, microsoft treasury department which is just a fascinating group of people it's 30 folks in a room i almost said 30 guys but it's men women and they're in a room and you're you're basically discussing just their field they're throwing questions at you and responding and then we took a tour of the campus and people just forget how immense Microsoft is. So we're in building yeah. five. Yeah. We see Bill Gates' original office. They flip a panel. There's the phone he used to call in the to the board meetings. And it's just like all this unbelievable history. And then you they start walking around. Well, go to you got to go here. So we were in the Microsoft office office. So you yeah. walk into an office and on the wall it says Microsoft office. office yeah. Cuz oh this is where they make Word, Excel, etc. Yeah. And so you start walking, you know, they're sending you from you going here, you going there, you going around the campus and like you're in building 3 and then you're in building 12 and then you're in building 37 and the numbers just keep going up and how many buildings do you guys go? Oh, the campus goes about 4 miles that way. There's 104 some crazy, no, you know, three figure it's giant so operation. big. It's a giant like, I'm operation. not used to a company no. town. I go to a right. high rise, and it's either the research department or right. the headquarters to see a facility of this size right. 
was just mind blowing. Right. And when you look at the numbers, my my seven hundred and fifty million of sales or whatever it was and Hundred fifty million of eBay barely moves the needle. No, it's just like it's a rounding error to right. those guys, right? As, and, as yeah. successful as Apple has become, and other companies yeah. who've passed them, they're still a cash cow. Yeah, they're still a behemoth. It's still the standard. There, there isn't a laptop, desktop, right. tablet. Now they made Office available for yeah. all the tablets. Yeah, everybody. No. Not even talking about the database and all yeah. the backend stuff that consumers don't see. Yeah. It it was it's just one empire. of the wildest experiences because you forget about them. It's yeah. like I remember in the '90s, Microsoft was front page news constantly. First, it was this, then it was the yeah. the litigation, the antitrust suit. But now they're just a big mature company that yeah. just prints money. Yeah, it was it was just one of the most amazing things. Yeah. Like as you look off to the horizon, yeah. and that's still the campus, the buildings. A lot of software developers. <laughs> we we had called an Uber to get back into town, and the guy couldn't find us. Uh, yeah, I'm like, we'll buy price. building six. Well, I'm by building 16, <laughs> and now there's building three, yeah. and then it's 27. Oh, well, they're not exactly in yeah. <laughs> numerical order, no, but I've keep going east. Times. You'll find it's just, us. It's very confusing. You've, so, I assume you've been all over that campus. I've been a few places on that campus, but not all over. A am I exaggerating? No, it's just it's crazy. Astonishing, yeah, right? Absolutely, nuts. absolutely astonishing. Let's let's talk a little bit about about some of the early pieces that that we missed. So I mentioned um, I didn't get to t mention the Hanauer Foundation. Tell us what you do with that. Yeah, uh, my wife and I do a lot of philanthropy. Uh, I would say most of it is focused on. Uh, stuff in the Pacific Northwest. How is that uh, different from everywhere else, other than the fact that you have a fifteen dollars minimum wage target in in Seattle now? Yeah. So, so the, the 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 difference is that most of the philanthropy that we do isn't sort of the traditional C three uh, give to the university or whatever. Uh, philanthropy. Most of the money. You don't want a building named after you. I, I, I regret that. There probably will be buildings named named after <laughs> us, but but the focus of what we do is more political. Mm -hmm. That if you want to create, so real, that's policy issues, policy and politics, and that's where most of our civic energy and investment goes. So, uh, what are your big three focuses? Um, well, political economy, writ which large, is the income inequality. In income inequality, and so my gang. In Seattle, the, the, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a group of collaborators were behind a lot of the whole fifteen-dollar minimum wage thing, which is that scales it. in over how long? Uh, in Seattle, it scales in over five years, more or less. But it passed in Seattle, San Francisco, L.A. Right. I am actually in New York with you, Barry, today because I was asked to testify uh, in front of the wage board that's considering mm -hmm. the same thing here in New York State. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a lot of energy and work goes into that work. Uh, another one of my projects right now is the overtime threshold, uh, an incredibly consequential piece of policy. What is that? What is the overtime threshold? So, so uh, the president uh, of the United States, through a rulemaking process within the Labor Department, has, uh, has the power to change the threshold number, the salary number below which... Uh, people are entitled to overtime if they work more than 40 hours a week. And in the day, when- So wait, let me make sure I understand this. So 
If you're making less than X a year on an annual basis. And you're salaried, you get overtime if you work more if you're than 40. If you're working more than 40. Yeah. Right. What what are those numbers currently? So so today, if you earn more less than twenty three thousand six hundred dollars, mm-hmm. which is basically a poverty wage for for family 40, four, that's a yeah, poverty. Yeah, uh, yeah, you automatically are entitled to overtime no matter what. But if you earn more than twenty three thousand six hundred dollars a year, mm-hmm. let's say, and your employer pitches you a fake title like assistant manager, they can get they can force you to work seventy hours a week and not pay you for the extra thirty. Claiming that you're now management, not yes, labor. Exactly, and th- and uh, everyone knows that Americans are working their butts off more uh, than almost any other country. It's it crazy, may be the most in the world. It, absolutely, and and uh, you know, in fact, there was a recent Gallup poll that showed that that uh, the average full t- the average American full time worker works forty seven hours, Way not forty, and that's not counting the email you're doing at midnight, right? Right, right. <laughs> you or know, on weekends, for right, sure. exactly, and so. And, and th- th- that, and, and so, so here's the thing is that in the day, Barry, when we had a thriving middle class, something like 63% of salaried workers were entitled to overtime if they worked more than 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. Today, that number is like 9%. Really? Yes. So it's, some of it is the dearth of unions. No, 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 no. This is all because this labor standard has been allowed to, it, it, oh, really? it just hasn't changed over decades. Oh, so right? in other words, inflation has just moved Exactly, and, exactly. Wow, that's amazing. It, I just assumed it was the- the, no. the slow death of unions that caused that. That can that contributes to it, of course. And if you if you are in a union, your your union has almost certainly negotiated that for you. But if you're not in a union, and ninety percent of people in America are not in unions, right. um, th- that means that if you earn twenty five thousand dollars a year being an assistant manager for Jack in the Box or whatever it is, uh, th- your employer can work you seventy hours a week and not pay you for the extra thirty that you work. And there are two. There, there are a number of things that are really terrible about that. Let's start with the fact that it wrecks your life. Um, it, we wonder why people, uh, why, why our schools struggle. Well, when parents are working seventy or sixty hours a week, they're not helping their kids with homework, mm-hmm. right? And it, so, so there's the whole impact that this extra work has on the family. But the, but the more insidious economic effects aren't just that you're getting cheated out of the pay of twenty or thirty extra hours of work. More particularly, what it allows people like me to do is take three jobs and turn it into two. Because if I can get two people to work 60 hours a week, mm-hmm. I don't need three employees. I only need two employees. Right. Right. And what that does is it obviously softens the labor market. It pulls a job out of the labor market. And by pulling a job out of the labor market, you increase the rate of unemployment, which in turn softens wages. So we have becomes this, a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle, right? It's a feedback loop. And so we have this persistent high le- level of unemployment. And a huge part of it is the fact that employers are using this loophole, essentially, to get workers to do the work of one and a half workers rather than employing more workers to do that work. How, how many people in America would you guesstimate are doing this sort of uh, excess work? Let's assume there's 150 million plus in the labor pool, yeah, I mean, you know, half of them are, you know, sort of half of them are. Uh, uh, if you're hourly, you automatically get overtime, and I think there are sixty or seventy million hourly employees. Um, it's that many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a but, substantial but, number. But, uh, but I mean, you know, seventy-five million or eighty million full-time workers in the United States 
um, you know, the vast majority of us are working overtime. Now, I don't think everybody should get overtime. Barry, I don't think you should get overtime. Lawyers, doctors, <laughs> no, accountants. I, here's people. the thing. Uh, you know, what I wrote a piece that appeared in Politico a few months ago called, you know, whatever happened to overtime, in which I argued that we I should bring we, we should bring the threshold back up to the high water mark, which would be sixty nine thousand dollars plus or minus today from where it Median once was. is fifty three. Exactly. So, so you're really just about the middle, maybe a touch higher. A touch higher. So my reasoning is, look, if you earn more than two thirds of your fellow Americans, Good for you. You're on your own. But if you were in less than the top third of Americans, you're working for somebody else. They're telling you what to do. And if you work more than 40 hours, you should get paid for it. Uh, and and so we went on a campaign to try to persuade the, the Obama administration in their rulemaking process to to, to, to bring that threshold back up to a reasonable level. Is, and, well, you say rulemaking process, so this doesn't require an act of Congress? No, this no, no, can no, be no. done through the Department it's, of Labor? It's, 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 it's happening, mm -hmm. and in about a week or two, uh, uh, the, the rule will be announced. Uh, and, um, it's, so you just let the cat out of the bag, huh? Well, no, there, was a, there, there, there have been some, uh, articles uh, indicating that this is coming, but so it is coming. So what does this mean for the middle class? What does this mean for that group of 40, 50, yeah. 60 million people? In, 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 in my opinion, a high, a reasonable overtime threshold is to the middle class what a minimum wage is to low wage work. It's really? an indispensable labor protection, an indispensable labor protection. You can't have a thriving middle class unless... Uh, you have a reasonable overtime threshold. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you soften the labor market and you get people to work for free. And 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 both of those things are incredibly corrosive. So now, how do you how do you respond when people say, Nick, you sound a lot less like a venture capitalist and a lot more like a labor organizer? Uh, you the, the, uh, what I say to them is, you don't understand capitalism, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So you want a robust middle class out buying yeah, your products. Yes. You don't understand capitalism. Being rapacious doesn't mean make you a capitalist. It makes you a sociopath and a jerk. <laughs> okay, there's a difference. And that Twitter handle is what, what's that Twitter handle is? Uh, what your Twitter handle? Nick Han at Nick Hanauer at Nick Hanauer. So send those nasty yeah. tweets to yeah. being rapacious. Hanauer, doesn't Hanauer. make you a capitalist. It, well, that yeah. part. By the way, yeah. that seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, and yet you get a lot of pushback. I do. All the time. I do, and. You know, I understand it. But look, here's the thing is that over the last- By the way, let me yeah. interrupt you a sec. My personal beef, and yeah. maybe it's because we're in the Northeast yeah. and we have such hideous uh, winters, especially the past two winters have been insane, is the gas tax has been stuck at the same level since 1993. Meanwhile, we have the price of oil dropped in half. Gas is a couple of bucks cheaper than it was three years ago. Yeah. Just raise the gas tax 20 or 30 cents, pave all these roads that yeah. look like they're disasters, fix these bridges that are falling down. You'll create all these good construction yes. jobs. And, you know, for people, it's a shame that two-thirds or whatever the number is of the U.S. that doesn't have a passport, when you leave the United States and you go to yes. Europe or you go to Asia, it's like, oh, that's what roads and bridges were like in the 1950s yes. in the United States. No, it's crazy. After we put the equivalent of trillions of dollars of infrastructure yeah. investment, to not do that seems so un-American, and yet people are horrified. Oh, how can I vote to raise a tax 20 cents a gallon? Yeah. I, because it, you need roads that are paved. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And, you know, the thing is, is that it, it, we have this weird sort of mental disease in this country that is 
somehow like a whole bunch of us have confused suffocating collectivism, which is right. bad, right, with the need to solve collective action problems, which is what civilization depends on. Society. Right? <laughs> exactly, right. right? Common should defense, we, defense, you know, yeah. all these things. Should we put our own fires out or should we have a fire department? <laughs> should I have to hack my way from my house to your house with a machete through the woods? Or should we build a road in between our houses, right? How has that gotten <laughs> yeah. so confused? I have what, no idea. How did we go from a nation that was literally the shining city on the hill, the standard for everybody else? You can't name an infrastructure yeah. that the United States, forget number one, where the United States is in the top 10. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's cell connectivity, broadband, uh, high-speed trains, mass transit, go down the list. There is nothing that, forget number, we're not even in the top 10. Yeah. I don't know. It's like this odd psychopathology where you've got this minority of people who've convinced themselves that anything we do together is somehow- it's communist. Is communism or a bad thing. It just- it's Except just, for the military. Uh, they even built- then, in Texas, the military, you must have read about this. The yeah. military was doing exercises in Texas right. and Greg Abbott calls out the National Guard to protect Texas against the U.S. military or whatever it is. It's just nuts. So, so just the nuts. shift, I'll tell you what I see is that yeah. shift is someone figured out that the the low information voter, some people who are uninformed, ignorant, and happy that way, you could spew whatever nonsense you want to yeah. them. And the, you know, my favorite example of that was the sign during one of the Tea Party um, before it was co-opted by the existing parties. But there was a sign: "Keep your government hands off my Medicaid." Check. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. like wait, you you really are yeah. the ultimate low information voter. So yeah. uh, that so sort the of minimum nonsense... wage is a great example of that, mm-hmm. right? The minimum wage is a way to solve a collective action problem. So from the point of view of the individual business, of course, paying poverty wages is awesome. I pay my workers nothing. Right. My profits are high. But you have a business and you pay your workers good wages so your workers can buy stuff from me. Now, sadly, yeah, sadly, it won't work out the other way. My workers will not be able to buy anything from you. Uh, but what do I care if I can get you to do that deal, right? Your workers pay taxes. My workers don't pay taxes. In fact, they need food stamps and Medicaid that your workers will provide. Again, so who wouldn't want that deal? But the problem with that deal, Barry, of course, is that not everybody can have that deal because everybody have that, has that deal. Right. Who will buy the stuff? <laughs> who will pay the taxes? And the only way you can solve that problem which is a collective action problem, is by requiring everybody to pay their workers at least enough so that they can participate in the economy and so they don't need government services. The, the way it's an I've outrage. The way I framed that argument yeah. so that it was palatable for my conservative friends has been look, there, I know you don't like wealth transfers, but there's a wealth transfer going on right now, and it's from taxpayers, of which you're one. To fast Walmart. food restaurants and and yeah, uh, places like Walmart that basically have figured out how to pay people enough, and I understand the system is there; they're gaming it. Yeah, except in places where they've helped form the system. So there, you can't say, well, they just were confronted by sure. a tax system and they hired an accountant to to present the best tax situation. But here, where they've helped form the system, they're gaming it. The bottom line is they're transferring wealth. 
from taxpayers to themselves. Let's pull the taxpayer out of it. This is a relationship between the customers, the owners, and the employees. And if it means that you have to charge an extra 50 cents to sell a McDonald's hamburgers, perfect. why are we subsidizing <laughs> yeah, that perfect. as taxpayers? Exactly. That's what I, I don't get. Perfect. Just leave. Look, you could... You could charge what you want. You could do whatever you want. Yeah. Just leave us taxpayers out. Exactly. Of it. And and you know, I, 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 I'm an old fashioned capitalist. I think that, you know, wages are the way that we do this in a capitalist system, right? That's that. You know, it, it, why should we have an EITC that makes up the difference? Why should right. we have food stamps that make up the difference? Why can't Walmart pay its workers enough so that they can have health care? And be able to buy stuff like the rest of us. There's just no reason for it, and 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 you know, and and that's why I'm in New York to to, to, to testify. You know, because I think it's so, it's so it's as it's as economically idiotic as it is morally. So here's you know, the interesting so. here's the interesting development that's just taken place. There's a new CEO at Walmart. There's a new head of retail. There's a whole bunch of changes that have taken place after their most recent quarterly announcement. The company CEO had come out and said one of the big issues that they were having was a huge turnover. Yes, right. They they have uh, almost two million employees in the United States, yeah. and something like a somewhere between a forty and a fifty percent turnover rate, and it costs one and a half times the salary to actually go through that process on a on a regular basis. They started to say their their turnover rate has come down, their employee satisfaction has has improved. Their customer satisfaction is going up. So it turns out yeah, that you, paying people a yeah. reasonable wage, hey, and we're just talking about going to, I think it was a $9 an hour. Right. He, the, the announcement that he made is that the $9 an hour wage is having the intended effect. They go to $10, and the CEO actually said, and we expect to take it higher than $10 yeah, after that. Yeah, newsflash. When you stop treating people like chattel, Right. Things get better for everybody, right? This is sort of an old lesson from humanity. Uh, you know, the better we treat one another, the better it goes for everybody in general. And again, this comes back to my early statement. Being rapacious doesn't make, make you a capitalist. It makes you a jerk. Uh, and and, and <laughs> That's at Nick Hanauer <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. So the, that, this is, you're answering the first part of yeah. what does the foundation focus on yeah. One thing was so public it, policy and income inequality. Yeah. What else do you guys look yeah. at? Yeah, and, and I just I just want to be on this one this one point for for a minute longer because the pushback on this has been uh, the so called economic theory that if wages go up, employment will go down. Right. And, and, That's it, been it, fairly thoroughly debunked. Absolutely. A, a, few, a few months ago, I had Alan Kruger, yeah. who was Obama's uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He did a very famous study in yes. the early '90s with. Absolutely. I want to say David Card, yeah. where they just happen to have two towns on opposite sides of a state border. Yes. One raised the minimum wage, the other didn't. The impact was really modest. The takeaway is if there is a gradual increase of modest amounts, yes. the impact is a net positive. Yes. Now, if you double the minimum wage tomorrow, you're going to have a negative set of consequences. Yeah, it, turn, it turns out that's not even true. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's not true. So I mean, if we, we double the minimum we, wage you tomorrow. You know, in the, in the, in the 40s, uh, uh, late 40s, we, we, uh, the, the minimum wage went up 88% well, one that's, year. Well, but it was frozen all during the war. 
Okay, but it went up 88% in one year, and, and, and unemployment plummeted from like 5% to 2% over the next couple of years. So to, be, had, clear, right. to be clear, there's abundant evidence that the more money you pay workers, the better business will be and the more workers you'll need. But here's the point. Here's the point. Despite the fact that this has been totally discredited, it does not stop industry and political leaders from saying it again and think again and again repeat. and again. You, if you get enough billionaires funding enough yeah. think tanks to say stupid stuff, eventually people start to believe it. Right, exactly. And, and you know, the reason I wanted to come to New York is to make it clear that the only thing that's true about the statement, the claim, when wages go up, employment comes down, is that if people like me can get workers to believe it's true, it will be very good for people like me, right? But then a reality. This claim is a scam. It's an intimidation tactic. That's what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of controlling people's behavior. Because if I can intimidate you into believing that if you get higher wages, I'll fire you. Then I, then I, you know, then I blunt uh, the 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 aggressiveness that you'll pursue higher wages, and that's what this is all about. In fact, in Seattle, which already pays way 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 higher minimum wage uh, than places like New York, or any other place in the country for fast food workers in particular, we don't have fewer restaurants per capita. We have more restaurants per capita. We have more restaurants per capita in Seattle, Washington, than you do even in New York. The only major city in the country that has more restaurants per capita than Seattle is San Francisco that pays even has. pays even more than Seattle. And this is because when restaurants pay restaurant workers enough so that even they can afford to eat in restaurants, guess what? Everybody it's pretty good. It's pretty good for the restaurant business. You know, there was a lot of pushback about Seattle, about the minimum wage, and restaurants were the focus. And we actually did some research and found out, because people love anecdotal examples, yes. a pizza place, that was a headline that we saw a pizza place closed in Seattle. But when you look at the numbers, when you look at the number yeah. of closings, they've been pretty steady over the past three years. Absolutely. Before the, this went into effect earlier this year, yeah. the minimum wage, before and after the number of closings are the same, but more importantly, when you looked at the permits for new restaurant openings, they have been climbing steadily, and yeah. they continue to climb steadily. There so some... there is this meme out that, oh, uh, Seattle is killing their restaurant business. It's booming. It's right. It's it, booming. And, and by the way, we were I was just in Seattle. Uh, full disclosure to everybody, the way I met Nick is we were meeting somebody who was a potential client, and you just happened to be at that yeah. dinner, and we started chatting. And I'm like, why is that name so familiar? Nick <laughs> I know I read something that he... Uh, I know I read something that he wrote, and it was somewhere, but um, when we were in Seattle, that is a city on fire. It is, it is just fire. It makes San Francisco and, and Silicon fire. Valley look like it's you know a mature, slow economy. Right. And, and part of the reason it's on fire is that we pay our low-wage workers more than other places pay them, so those workers can participate more robustly in our economy. Right? How's the housing market in Seattle? Out of control, right? This is the you know the. Prop- but even still, I find prices in Seattle. Yeah, it's much less reasonable compared to for out of con- even yeah. reasonable compared to yeah. you know Napa and Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah. I think is insane. Yeah, you guys are reasonable yeah. compared to that compared yeah. to New York for sure, for sure. But it's still you know the, it, cities either grow or they shrink. If they shrink, you have one set of problems. Right. If they grow, you have another set yeah, of but problems. But those are—that's a better set of <laughs> it's problems. It's a high-quality set of problems, right. but it is a set of problems. And affordable housing is a big challenge. Sure. For a geographically 
kind of contained place like Seattle. Well, you Seattle. have two different mountain ranges, yeah. and you're sort of on the stuck water. in the right. It's yeah. it's well, that's always the issue is when you have a limited amount of time and space. Yeah, it's you hard. know, there's there's only so much you could do with that. Exactly. If everybody wants to come. Everybody wants to come. <laughs> well, there are a lot of jobs. There's a lot of activity. Right. It happens to be just a lovely climate. Yeah, it's, it's very different than. Uh, we had a miserable winter this year. We had a terrible winter last year. Yeah. I'm hoping that we'll mean revert a little bit. And, and <laughs> yeah. you know, now that I have, uh, in fact, in fact, after last winter, we moved to a new house, and my driveway is this, you know, vertical snake. <laughs> and I went Do out a lot and got of walking a, up and down. I, I got a jeep because it's the only thing that makes it up the driveway in the winter. The all-wheel drive, you know, a typical all-wheel drive car has headaches. Yeah, you know, that it's, when, when four-wheel drive doesn't get up to the driveway, it's like, all right, I got to get something. Yeah. And so I found this ridiculous uh, – I, I actually it's, – it's my favorite value investment. It was a salvage title Jeep Rubicon in orange. I would normally never buy an orange car. But it had so you got a hell of a deal on it. Big beefy – yeah, I paid half of well, – I figure, all right, for half, I don't care if it's orange. It's got these big – beefy naughty I'll tires. I bet you you're the only one in your neighborhood to have an orange Jeep. There is literally that not only is that true, although there are a million Jeeps in my neighborhood because of that exact reason, oh, okay. because of the hills. The only one that's a friend who actually had helped me do the research on the Seattle restaurants found a website you can punch in a zip code and it will tell you all the cars in your zip code and you could look up car per zip code and say how many Jeeps in your neighborhood? How many Chevy Luminas? How many Bentley GT? You could look it up by whatever, and it's insane because all this data is public, and people get that. get to play with it. I'll forward you, and I'll post. Uh, I'll that. post that. I love so, that. so we've spent time on income inequality. What else does the foundation look at before? So I we, go through a list. I got a list of questions. Yeah. For you so here. we we've done a lot of work on gun. Uh, gun safety, gun responsibility, and stuff. And uh, I how have, do you define gun responsibility? I, 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 uh, policies that lead to fewer people getting killed with guns. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, of course, we have a we have a, a, a gun safety crisis in the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, the rate at which people are killed by guns here is some place between ten and a hundred times higher than it is in basically any other civilized place. I saw an interesting stat. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with this. You have a gun in your house, and it increases the possibility yeah, yeah. of a gun being used hugely. against your own family. Oh, yeah, yeah. What's, hugely, the, what's the data on that? I can't, I, I, it depends on the circumstance. Mm -hmm. But for sure, having a gun massively increases the risks that you or someone in your family will be killed by, uh, with a gun. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, particularly if you're a woman. So if you're a woman and your husband has a handgun, not a good uh, thing. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. Huh. Uh, it's statistic statistically speaking, and you know that that you know the the view is from a lot of people that feeling safer is the same as being safer. I realize that there are a lot of people who own guns who feel safer. Sure. But you're actually not safer. Statistically. And, the, and statistically speaking, in fact, you're less safe and the people around you are less safe. A huge problem, of course, is suicide. And People uh, don't realize that yeah, you yeah. ask somebody in the United States randomly, what are, the, are there more homicides or suicides? Most people will say homicides. Yeah, the but correct it's answer suicide. is there's suicide. more suicides than homicides. And in and, the US. and the reason that we're the, a do it yourself. Uh, yeah, and the, the 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 thing is is that is that having a gun within easy access 
uh, massively increases the rate of successful suicide because you don't miss with a gun. Um, And what people don't understand about suicide, before I came to this work, I I really hadn't thought of it. But suicide to most people, you know, you conceptualize suicide as this very, very planned out rational thing where somebody says, uh, you know, I'm done with it all. I'm going to take my life. And there's nothing you can do to stop them. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Really? Suicide is an emotional act in the moment. Impulsive. It's impulsive. Almost no one relentlessly tries to kill themselves. So if you avoid that impulse, if you stop that. So this is why if you put a fence up on a bridge, suicide dramatically is reduced because people get to the bridge and they're like, oh, this is too much trouble. I'm going home. (laughs) I swear to God, you would think that a little fence wouldn't stop you if you wanted to kill yourself. If you're that committed. If you're you're going to kill yourself. It's a big decision, a six-foot fence. I know, and you're like, ah, it's too much trouble. They go home. So now they've done this on the Golden Gate. Yes, they've done this in a number yes, of places, yes. and it actually reduces it works. The suicide. It works. It works. They don't just not jump off that bridge. They don't commit suicide again really? because it's an impulsive decision. Somebody's having a horrible day. Something terrible happens to them. They're it, they're chemically imbalanced at that moment, and they right. make this split second decision to do it. If you don't have a gun with an easy access, the chances that they're going to actually kill themselves go down dramatically. Really? And so that's why things like safe storage are so important. And that's why having guns laying around all over the place are terrible, is terrible from that point of view. But, you know, there, there's simply no doubt that there is a perfect statistically statistical correlation between the number of guns in a community and the amount of gun death. And we need to find ways to reduce the gun violence in our society back to civilized levels uh, and, you know, that's just going to take a bunch of good new policy. So when you talk about gun responsibility, you're really not saying we want to get rid of handguns. We are against the Second Amendment. You're saying we want to work with gun owners and find a way to be yeah, more responsible. Like, so, for instance, we, you know, we 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 uh, we passed a criminal background checks bill in Washington state. And all that bill does is require anyone who buys a gun from anyone to go through the national check to find out if you're a criminal or a psychopath. Uh, who you, could be against that? Who could be against that? Well, it turns out the NRA and all the people who manufacture you know guns why that is? are violently against that because it's terrible for the gun business. That that just doesn't seem to make any sense because yeah. when you see surveys of gun owners, yeah. they're overwhelmingly yeah. in favor of- 80 or 90%. It's yeah. nuts. It's nuts. But violently opposed to a common sense- uh, uh, piece of legislation like that, where if you're going to buy a gun, we get to check and make sure you're not a criminal or a crazy person. Uh, you know, another piece of legislation that uh, we're trying to pass is something called an extreme risk protection order. So this is a this is a, this is a a rule that allows a family to go to a judge and say, little Billy is super crazy. And he's super dangerous. And if somebody doesn't take his guns away, he's going to kill himself or he's going to kill somebody else. So in a huge proportion of the mass killings that you find, the families knew. Everybody knew. Everybody knew it was going to happen. There's a great case in Washington State, the Cafe Racer killings, where this kid was whacked out bonkers. His family went to the police multiple times saying, please, please take his guns away. Their hands were tied. And they're basically, the police are like, look, until he kills somebody, there's nothing we can do. So the kid went out and he killed half a dozen people. Wow. Right? And so, you know, this is a common sense 
public safety protection that you should that reasonable people should be able to pass. But of course, the gun lobby is violently against it. And well, they're coming to take our guns away. Exactly. But it's just nuts. Right. It's nuts to believe that we should. And here's the real. By by the way, that's another thing that I would imagine that gun owners. You would think you would think. But 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 their agency. You have to remember that the gun lobby isn't about gun owners. They're it's about, about gun, gun manufacturers, manufacturers yeah. right? And That's anything, become pretty clear. Exactly. It's all Anyone about, who didn't understand that hasn't yeah. been paying attention. Yeah, yeah. It's all years. about how many guns can you sell anyway. That, that's a big change, though, it from is. what the NRA from, was like 10, yeah, yeah. 20, 30 years yeah, absolutely. ago. It's completely different. But, you know, it, it, it's just, it, it's a real shame that we can't, as a society, you know, bake in some of these basic protections so we'll have a safer civil society. In, in my state, in most states today, your chances of being killed by a, with a gun are higher now than being killed in a traffic accident. Really? Yeah. That, that's that's amazing. So income inequality, gun responsibility, what's the tons third Tons and tons issue? of stuff on public education, policy mm-hmm. and reform. I founded something called, co-founded something called the League of Education Voters in Washington State, which has pursued, you know, every manner of public education reform funding, so on and so forth. So we're what, big supporters of what, that. What do you think about this national testing and the... Oh, I forget the name man. of the other thing that yeah. I've been hearing people complain about yeah. lately. Uh, you know, these are very complicated. Common core. Common core. You know, the, these are very complicated questions, and I'm, I wish I, I wish I wasn't, but I am of two minds about them. I mean, mm-hmm. on the one hand, you want to have kind. You certainly want to have a national standard of what we're trying to teach and some sort of national judge about whether we're teaching it, mm-hmm. right? Just because Alabama decides to give every kid A's doesn't mean that those kids in Alabama are actually learning the math right. uh, that they're going to need to participate in the global economy. Right. Uh, and, uh, and you know, we, we need to find a way somehow to decide as a country what we want kids to learn and to figure out as a country if they're learning it. Uh, and how to do that? So, as you know, if you run businesses, measuring things is very, very hard because there are a lot of variables at play. But if you right? can't measure, you can't measure, you can't improve it. Yeah, or exactly. It. So, yeah, very complicated. So let's let's move to some of. Um, we're just about through the questions we missed. Amazon. What made Amazon a success? We did that. We did the TED talk. Um, let's let's go through some of my my favorite questions that I ask. Uh, uh, ask everybody. So, so who were your early mentors? So, for sure, the guy that ran the family business. Uh, who What's was, his name? His name was Roy Clothier. He passed away, you know, ten years ago or so. Um, and he was an extraordinarily shrewd business person. Mm-hmm. He just was as sharp and clear a thinker as you've ever met. And what, what did he impart to you? What did you learn from him? You know, how to manage people, how to think about business problems, uh, how not to overreact, <laughs> you know, right. how to, you know, that's probably understated. Yeah. It took me a while know, to learn how yeah, to do that. Yeah. You know, like how to be strategic. Right. Right. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, just a lot of, a lot of great, uh, a lot of great lessons. You know, my dad was uh, in many ways less strategic than Roy was, but he was a great moral uh, mentor. And, you know, so the, the funny thing about the pillow business, 
mm-hmm. is that it's characterized was classically was characterized by immense amounts of cheating. Really? Yeah. So how do you cheat in the pillow business? How can, how do you not cheat in it? <laughs> so so a pound of down is costs worth about 30 bucks. Right. But a pound of crushed feathers is worth a buck. So if I put a pound of crushed feathers in a pillow, you will Barry, you would never be able to tell the difference. Really? Well, absolutely. I put them in the store. You, you look at them side by side. You can't tell the difference. So why is there such a price difference? Just- well, because that just there just is because there's because be, well over time you can tell the difference, but right. sitting in the store you can't tell the difference. Oh, I gotcha. Right? right. And and so there's an enormous temptation to put the wrong things right. in the pillows because obviously if you cheat a little bit, your margins go through the roof. And but you ext- you get a spot check and you get people returning nobody stuff checks. and nobody, nobody checks. checks. No, the retailers don't check. Why don't the retailers check? Because they don't give a rip. Right. This is like, uh, uh, retailers don't care about quality. All I care about is cash flow. Move it out. Sales. Get it yeah, in, yeah. out, now onto the So next. nobody checks. And so the whole industry was characterized by cheating, and many of our biggest competitors were relentless cheaters. Oh, And really? my dad wouldn't cheat. He just wouldn't cheat. Refused. Refused. And he just felt strongly like doing it the right way over time would be the way to go. And did, did retailers recognize the difference? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. And over time, he was right. We kicked everybody's butt. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a big competitor in North Carolina or South Carolina. Pillotex. Right. Which was like the name brand yeah. in the space. Gone. Eventually went bankrupt. Yeah. Were they, were they cheaters? No. Was... You know, Pillotex to their credit, were, they, they did not cheat. Mm-hmm. So but why I'll... did, how did they get, uh, you know, they, you know, uh, they went out a bit, they went out of business, I think just because they overreached. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, they, they made some bad strategic decisions and got disfocused. Um, but the cheaters largely went away and, and, uh, short term, okay. it's an issue. It's yeah. frustrating to compete with, yeah, yeah. but long term you can't survive that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a great, you know, it was a great lesson and, and, um, you know, it's a great life lesson. So, so those are the mentors. What investors influenced you? Investors. Well, my, you know, my partner's. You know, mm-hmm. have two very, Give very us some smart, names. Uh, Pete Higgins, who was mm-hmm. one of the co-presidents at Microsoft in the day right. with, uh, he was in the office of the president with, uh, Rakes when, when, uh, Jeff Rakes went on to run, uh, the, um, the foundation mm-hmm. and Steve Ballmer, who obviously, uh, ended up being the president. Right. Um, unbelievably smart guy. And my partner, uh, Mike Slade. Who uh, went to? Who, yeah, so Mike and Pete, I believe, were the first two MBAs Microsoft hired. Oh, they really? Both, they went to Stanford Business School together, and they both, you know, got offers from Balmer together. And that's early nineties. Early? No, 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 no. Early eighties. No, early eighties. Yeah, really? Yeah, 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 eighty-one or something like that. That's crazy. Remember. Yeah, long time ago. So, both very, very early uh, Microsoft executives, and Mike. So Pete stayed at Microsoft and went all the way to the top, and Mike. Ended up running the Apple business for Microsoft and befriended Steve Jobs, and then ended up as the vice president of marketing for Next Computer. I remember that, right? And then after that, came back and ran a big internet company um, for Paul Allen, mm-hmm. um, one of the original Microsoft the original, crew, yeah. who left when he got yep. ill and then survived, yep. and yep. has since become a philanthropist That's slash. Right. VC as That's well. Right. And then Vulcan Ventures, is that the yeah, name of Vulcan. his? Uh... Yeah. And then Mike um, went back uh, as sort of a consultant to Apple and was a non, he was a, he was a member of the Apple executive committee, but as a non-employee. So mm-hmm. 
And so sort of say close to that. But anyway, they're just, they're incredibly smart people and I'm lucky to get to collaborate with them. What are some of your favorite books? Um, well, business books, I, I, I don't think you can beat Michael Porter for strategy. Mm -hmm. I think his book, Competitive Strategy, is the best book on strategy ever written. Really? Uh, yeah. My, my Michael opinion. Porter, Competitive Strategy. Techniques for Analyzing Industries and Competitors. Um, and, uh, but as a student of strategy, I think that, you know, I've read a ton of military strategy books and, you know, like everybody for, for reads instance, Sun Tzu. Yeah. And, and all that stuff. But there's all war. sorts of great stuff available. In fact, one of my favorites is the, is the, is the Marine Corps, uh, book, uh, called just called war fighting. Huh. This is an amazing book on strategy. A short really? Book. Yeah. Really, really fun. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I read a ton of. Uh, I don't read much fiction, but I read a ton of um, nonfiction, nonfiction about the issues that interest me. And, um, uh, you know, a, a very interesting um, uh, book um, that I just uh, 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 read is something called The End of Power. The End of Power. Yeah. Who's the author? Uh, Moises Nain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and, and his thesis is that it, basically the nature of power is changing over time. So in the, in the day, some people that in the good old days, people had real power, which is you will do this or I will kill you. Right. <laughs> okay. That's good Serious old fashioned power. Right. power. Today, um, it's more like, gosh, I'd love for you to do this. And by the way, it's your idea, and won't we all be happy if we do this together? So it, it's more from <laughs> moral threats to yeah, persuasiveness. To, to persuasiveness, right? Right. And, 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 and that is an extraordinarily interesting trend in terms of how we manage uh, countries, enterprises, societies, so on and so forth. And, and, and something really worth thinking very, very carefully about if you want to change, if you want to affect society. Right. If you, since you like the military books, I'm going to recommend an odd one that you may find interesting. It's less than 10 mm -hmm. years old called A Genius for Deception. And it's the history of intel and counterintel and things like camouflage right. and counterspying, mostly about the Brits, but the US and the Germans What's are in it also. A Genius for Deception. It's really a fat, one of these fascinating stories. It tells the story during World War One and World War Two. Uh, all sorts of fascinating different stories about what happened, but there was one particular German, I guess the World War One equivalent of a Panzer, Panzer movement, maybe it was early World War Two, where they have these giant tarps, they're 300 yards square, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. they're moving tanks and men during yeah. the, so they're not seen by spotter planes, and it's how all camouflage came about, and some of the stuff is just... yeah. You just, it's always been here. So you assumed right. it's always been here, but it turns out that's not true. Some of the stuff didn't exist a hundred years ago or right, 75 years it. ago. Someone had a created. Yeah. It's really, it's really quite fascinating. I'll send you, I'll send you a link to the book yeah. on Amazon. Yeah, there we um, go. <laughs> what, um, what do you like to do during your downtime? Uh, well, I have a family and a couple of kids and so we rip around doing fun things. Uh, you know, I live in the Pacific Northwest, so we're very outdoorsy. We ski, we hike. We, my son and I are fanatic fly fishermen. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. We do a lot of salmon of and and what else? Yeah, with and trout. trout and stuff like that. Um, uh, and uh, I have a preponderance of boats. 
Uh-huh. So we, uh, we we spend a lot of time on boats. Power or sell? Uh, power. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, I have a preponderance of boats because it turns out to be easier to buy boats than sell boats. <laughs> <laughs> someone someone told me that a boater's favorite boat is his second to last boat. Yeah, maybe. Because you just keep working your way <laughs> yeah, up until you go too far. Exactly. I have a little runabout I keep over here. I love sailing. Yeah. But in this part of the country, you got to get in and start the engine and go. It yeah, just yeah. makes life yeah, so yeah. much easier. No, no, for sure. But, uh, you know, uh, I just spent a week in the Caribbean with a bunch of my friends diving and uh, fly fishing mm-hmm. on uh, what island? Where boats. do you go? Uh, uh, we you go we diving? were in the Exumas in the Bahamas. Uh huh. Yeah, and uh, then uh, then uh, another week with my wife and three other couples, messing around. You know, seeing stuff. And that that sounds like fun. Yeah, yeah. Doing uh, we do a lot of stuff like that. So, yeah. what sort of advice would you give to? I keep using the word millennial, but just anybody graduating college and starting out their career. What sort of advice would you would you give to them today? That's a tough one. People, uh... you know what? I, 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 I was wa- I was watching, uh, rewatching the um, thing that they did on John Adams based on the David McCullough book. Uh huh. One of the guys in my office just finished it it's a and fantastic. has not stopped raving about it. And John Adams said to his children, "Be good, do good. Words to live by. Not not bad advice. For, not bad for millennials. advice. Be good, do good." You know, try to make a difference in the world. Uh, try to make a, you know, try to leave the place better than you found it. Uh, you know, I just think that, you know. that Have a positive impact. Yeah, have a positive impact. So since Don't you... be a sociopath. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> That's a relatively yeah. <laughs> uh, relatively simple, don't yeah. be a jerk. Good, good advice for everybody. Yeah. So you've essentially joined the VC industry 20-something years ago. Mm-hmm. So what's changed over the course of, of your career as a, as a venture capitalist? Well, there are a lot more people in it mm-hmm. uh, in various ways. You know, there's a lot more. I mean, one of the things that's happened to the world is that we, we are living in an age of capital superabundance. Right. Right. Like, so here's a fascinating thing, Barry. So when I, when I was born, the value of the entire S&P mm-hmm. uh, to the market cap of the S&P to the, the population of the United States was $1,000 to one. All right. Thousands so there was $1,000 of S&P market cap huh. to every man, woman, and child in the United States. 1,000 per. Yeah. But when I graduated from high school, it was $3,000 per uh-huh. man, woman, and child. Today, it's $60,000 really? per man, woman, and child. Yeah. That's amazing. Yes. Now, some of that clearly globalization. Uh, there are all sorts of factors at play. But that's but, that's a huge financialization of the economy. Of the economy. And 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 and, and that, by the way, that's just the S&P 500, right? That, right. That's not the other capital available. And right. so- what you have is an enormous amount of capital sloshing around um, the world, uh, looking for uses for itself. Right. And so there's a lot of people in the in the deploying capital business, and that's a good thing in a lot of ways. But certainly, um, the 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 business has become more competitive in in that sense. There there are people you know below you know above you who are deploying much bigger. Uh, uh, slugs of capital, and there are a million people below you who will do, you know, any old thing from five bucks to, you know, fifty thousand or five hundred thousand, whatever that, it is. So, so there's that. I, I would say that, you know, the one really, the the thing that's really changed about 
the world and in particularly the internet powered world mm -hmm. that's a hard lesson to embed in your brain if you started out a long time ago, which is it's so big, it, you'd be amazed what will work, <laughs> right? Things that 20 years ago sounded like insane, tiny ideas. A niche. A, t insane, tiny niches turn into giant enterprises today because with 6 billion people online spending trillions of dollars, whatever it is, you can make a business out of the craziest stuff. And it, it is, it never fails to surprise you what turns into a giant idea. I mean, for the life of me, I can't figure out how Pinterest became a thing for the, can you imagine the first pitch on Twitter? You and I are too old. Yeah, for that. yeah. 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 Can you imagine the first pitch on Twitter right now? I use Twitter every day as do you, right? Well, right. Can you imagine absolutely. the first pitch, which well, is like, well, it's short message servicing, but we're going to take what people send back and forth on phones yeah. and post it publicly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Next. Yeah. <laughs> Next. Get right. out of Get my out office. Of my office. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, you just, and here it is. Right. And uh, now Twitter has its challenges, but it's still a $27 billion company. Right. It's yeah, a yeah. huge market it's a cap. Huge, and huge thing. the bet is somehow they're going to figure out how yeah. to monetize yeah. that and, and other so, than sell themselves to Google. Right. So you often have to, you know, I often have to catch myself thinking oh, it's the stupid tiny idea. And then you think, oh my God, you know, like who knows it, the internet teaches you humil humility if nothing else. <laughs> I've heard I've heard many a VC yeah. say that and I forgot which fairly well regarded VC firm publishes their lists every year of here's what we said no to. Yes. Aren't we dumb? <laughs> no. And it's like it's we passed a, on Apple. Yeah. We thought Cisco was terrible <laughs> yeah. and you know, it's that sort of stuff and those no. are real names no. from the list. Exactly. And for sure anybody who's honest has that list. Right, it, it's yeah, so yeah. random as yes. to what works and what anybody what who's honest work. has a list of things where you're like, I passed on what, right? You know, like what was I thinking? Of course, because well, you, you looked at it and it sounded idiotic. Yeah, like and, who's gonna wait? You expect people to pin stuff up that they've seen elsewhere, and somehow that's gonna make money. Yeah, and you know, let let me give you an example. So, of just you know, random luck. So, so my wife and I uh, three years ago decided that we needed to make a significant donation to our local children's hospital because mm -hmm. we had never done it. It's a very important civic institution and we just do these sorts of things. We say, you know, where should we send the money? Uh, my wife's, one of my wife's very closest friends on the board. She sets us up with a meeting with the people who run research for children, including the guy in charge of cancer research. This guy makes his pitch. I see a lot of pitches, Barry, and I'm like, okay, that guy is worth backing. Right. So we give them like the, who's like, it's a million dollar donation or something like that. Given the money, and I'm like, but you know, look, I'm a venture capitalist, so I got to ask who owns the IP. And they're like, well, you know, turns out there is this entity that you could invest in. So I throw some money in, right? right. Why wouldn't you? Like, because you love the immu idea. It's immunotherapy, and this guy, and the, and the, and 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 you know, we gave him money to pursue his research and go into human trials. But the pitch was so compelling that you were like, look, if if you're really going to cure cancer here. Like, surely I, I want to make a bet, right? right? So I make a bet, but I pitch this to my partners and I'm like, look, this is this thing. I know nothing about bio. I know right. nothing about this. No nothing. biotech, no. Nothing. I've no, never made an investment that. ever. No oncology, zero nothing. background. Zero background. I really like the guy. 
I'm ma- I'm making an investment. What do you guys think? And they're like, you've lost your mind. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you're an idiot. Don't do it. But I did. Fast forward. They cured cancer. <laughs> okay. So, now, when you say they cured cancer, so this, they cured a specific yeah, type of cancer? So, 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 so Mike Jensen's research at Children, they have now treated 30 kids who were on death's door with leukemia. Right. In 95% of the cases, these- the, the, Full I'm, remission. Full remission. Real Full remission. For, is it just for that one yeah, leukemia? Yeah, these, these or... kinds of, a couple of kinds of leukemia, I right. think. Full remission. So, meantime, so... meantime, the company gets reconstituted in this thing called Juno Therapeutics. Oh, really? And is now worth $6 billion. Yeah, Juno is huge. Yeah. And <laughs> your partners yeah. have no money in it. Well, but no, but money. they made a good, they made a good, they made a good venture capital decision. Right. You they didn't have a, an expertise in that space, so you why know are we going to just nothing about it. We've never made an investment in biotech. This is a random, idiotic bet based on an emotional response you had to a guy. Right. It, but no, you have good instincts this Well, means. I was lucky. It's my, right. my point There's that also. That random was, luck. That was where we began the conversation, right. was luck. with luck. the combination of yeah. skill plus luck. <laughs> yes. So there was a little bit of instinct. You yeah. saw something after, right. look, the whole, I'm not a, I, I love Malcolm Gladwell's writings, but I know a lot of them come with an asterisk. Yeah. This was an outlier case where you've seen 10,000 of VC pitches, and here's a guy that basically, oh, no. this guy seems to know what it's he's doing. It's the real deal. Right. And you basically went yeah. with it. And so, so now I'm an investor in Juno Therapeutics. At a very early stage? At a very early stage. It's worth $6 billion. We, we, you may join the Trace <laughs> yeah. combo uh, uh, you know, group after yeah. all. For, yeah. for those of you who aren't fans yeah. of Silicon Valley, so, it's a hilarious digression yeah. uh, in the show. Um, and finally, my final question, uh, which I ask all my guests, what do you know about your chosen field, and let's call it investing and venture capitalist, that you wish you knew when you began your career? Oh, golly. Uh, it's a question that provokes thought on a lot of people. Yeah. So, you know, so the economy isn't money. I wish I had, I wish I understood better that the economy isn't money, it's people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Explain it, that a little further well, because, because that's an it's interesting about insight. People, it's about human capacity and capability. It's about human capital? Yeah, just like so you, you don't invest in a company, you invest in a group of human beings working together. And if you pick the right human beings who know how to work together in the right way, you know, you, you, the chances of success are much higher. And I think mm-hmm. that just having better people skills, being able to read people better, being able to understand people better, being able to understand their emotions better uh, is, it, you know, in investing and in, I think in every domain in life, uh, an enormous advantage. Empathy, you know, just emotional just, IQ. Yeah. You know, just not like, oh, look at the spreadsheet. Look at the hockey stick. It, you know, the right. spreadsheet says it's going to go here, but, you know, but not noticing that those two guys hate each other. <laughs> right? right. The two guys that just presented this plan hate each other and are going to last 15 minutes working together. Like 15 minutes after you put the three million in, they're going to be in some war and you're going to get need to get rid of one of them. Right. Like not noticing that bad. That that is that is a challenge. 
Nick, I, I can't begin to thank you enough for oh. your time. You've been you've been so generous. Give us a once over of where everybody can find you on Twitter, your website. Yeah, I'm at, at Nick, Nick Hanauer, Hanauer. At Nick Hanauer on Twitter. Um, I do have a website. I think it's Nick Dash Hanauer. Yeah, you have a dash in the middle of your. Yeah, name. I think some 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 other Nick Hanauer clown took. You should be buying. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I should I should track that guy down. It should just yeah. be Hanauer. <laughs> yeah. You should that should be your domain, Hanauer.com. Yeah. And then you know we have a, my uh, you know I have a team of people who work on politics uh, with me, and that entity is called Civic Ventures, and it's very much like CivicVentures.com. Yeah, CivicVentures.org. Dot org. Uh, and uh, and our, our goal is to be do what we do in the financial in the in the in the business world to be uh, uh, you know sort of uh, disruptive in the civic sphere. Right, creative disrupt, creative destruction in the civic sphere. That sounds that sounds yeah. quite fascinating. Yeah, that's so goal. thank you again for being so generous with your time. Yep, thank you for Gary. those for those Super of you fun. who in, are here with us to the end. You and you're enjoying this sort of conversation, and if you've toughed it out for this whole time, you must be enjoying our conversation. Look an inch higher or an inch lower on iTunes. You'll see all the rest of our um, shows. You're we're coming up on a year, so you have to be like 45 or 46 on the list uh, of shows we've done. Be sure and check out my daily column at BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz or go to my blog at Ritholtz.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.